The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, I invite you this morning to take your Bibles. We're going to look at just a couple of verses in chapter 11 of Acts and verses 26 to 30, and then we'll look at one verse in chapter 12, and then we'll read down into chapter 13. So Acts chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 26 to 30, and then down to chapter 12. Actually, we'll read from verse 27 of Acts 11. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And all this took place in the reign of Claudius, and in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And then in chapter 12 and verse number uh, 25, it says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of His Word. A brief prayer before we begin. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make the book live to us, O Lord. For the sake of Jesus' name and glory, we pray. Amen and amen. God is indeed raising up a new generation of pastors and preachers and teachers and missionaries. We saw that last week in chapter 12. (coughs) Excuse me. But who are those men and women whom God will use for His work? God does not take volunteers, but God chooses whom He uses. God is always preparing His workers. God saves them and God calls them. God equips them and God separates them. And God commissions them into His work. And with that, God has only just begun. The very work that God calls and separates them and us to is His greatest tool to shape that person more into Christ's image. Brother and sister in Christ, will you be that man, that woman, whom God will use to do His work? Here in our text, we see for the first time a church sending missionaries away to another region to work. And up until now, geographical areas had been reached and evangelized by roaming individual missionaries. But 
here now in chapter 13 from Antioch, the first especially commissioned men went out to preach the gospel. It's the first time a church had prayed and fasted and sought God's wisdom to deliberately, purposefully send missionaries out. God's preparation work results in several characteristics that help us to identify who it is that God is raising up to do His work. So the question is, what does our text tell us about the character of men and women whom God uses for His work of ministry? The text does not give us an exhaustive list. There's other things besides these, but there are some very key insights as we look into our text about those whom God uses for His work. You've got a, a little pink outline sheet. You can follow along there and uh, make some notes if you want to. But notice, first of all, that God uses those who are saved by God's grace. Now, Right away, you're going to say, hold on a second, our text doesn't talk about that at all. But we do know that that's absolutely essential. We know that these two, Saul and Barnabas, are clearly saved by God's grace. Barnabas' salvation is not mentioned in Scripture. He's simply introduced as a disciple of the Lord in Acts chapter 4. But the character and faithfulness and godly qualities we see in Barnabas are the fruit of his true state of conversion by God. And Saul's salvation is clearly described for us in Acts chapter 9. And some of you might respond that surely this is a given. And I would say no. I can honestly say that three times in my 50 plus years in church, I've had the sinking realization that someone in the leadership or the actual pastoral ministry of the church was likely not born again. And in months and years following, seeing the evidence that they were not at all born again. It happens. In fact, Jesus himself said that many will come on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? That means to preach in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Sadly, some men will go through lives of ministry self-deceived into thinking they're truly saved when they're not. Sadly, even more sadly, church selection committees are sometimes more interested in the competency of a man than the deeper underlying character of the man that they're considering for ministry. Is he truly born again? Does he truly know the Lord? Paul challenged the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they, by extension, to see, for us to see whether we are in the faith or not. Brother and sister in Christ, cry out to God to give you the reassurance of peace within your own heart that you truly belong to Him, that you're truly born again. And as Paul says elsewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look to see what fruit your lives bear. I've heard stories about preachers preaching the gospel And halfway through their own sermons, realizing that they didn't know the Lord and responding by faith to their own message and coming to know Christ. It's possible. It happens. But one of the marks, one of the characteristics, one of the primary, absolutely essential characteristics of those whom God uses are those whom God has first saved by His grace in the gospel. Secondly, 
God uses those who are faithful in ministry. And we can see that Barnabas and Saul were faithful in the word ministry that God gave them. In verse 26 of chapter 11, we see that Barnabas and Saul faithfully taught the Antioch church for an entire year. Sunday after Sunday, in times of corporate worship, and from house to house, they taught the church. Beyond that, we know it was a a pattern of Paul's ministry. He said in Acts chapter 20, in the second part of verse 18, down to verse 21, You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, humility, with tears, with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were faithful in the ministry that God had given them. Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, Moreover, it's required in stewards or servants that one be found faithful. Here Barnabas and Saul display their faithfulness to the ministry God had given them. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul's ministry produced fruit. In 11, 23 to 30, 30, the previous chapters, there's only two teachers involved, Barnabas and Saul. And during the course of their ministry, God raised up other mature, godly men, Simeon, Lysias, and Menaean. And we don't know too much about them. We do know that there are prophets and teachers who are involved in, first of all, the expositional teaching of the word and the exhortational preaching of the word. That's what prophecy means. The church was being ministered to and built up by God through them. And this in-church discipleship was also a pattern of Paul's ministry. We see what he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, that the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, what's he say? Entrust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what he was already doing. We remember it's God working through their ministry and God working through our ministry that God raises up those other gifts. Bible tells us in Romans 12 verses 6 and 7 that God gives ministry and service gifts to the church according to the grace which he bestows on individuals. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible tells us that God appoints prophets and teachers and a host of other gifts for the ministry of the church. God gives and appoints and he raises up those men as is appropriate through the faithful ministry of teachers and preachers and elders and pastors of the church. Barnabas and Saul were faithful in the word ministry that God had already entrusted them to, and that ministry was producing fruit. We notice something else here. Barnabas and Saul were faithful in the practical ministry that God gave them. In verses 28 to 30, we see how they were given the money to to be sent to the Jerusalem church for relief of the famine. And we see in verse 25 how they went down to Jerusalem. They discharged their responsibilities. And when they had completed the work that was given to them, they returned. They went back home. They're found faithful and trustworthy with the simple issue of money. 
Their behavior is an illustration of a very key principle that we can see in Scripture about the men that God raises up to do His work. Jesus Himself said in Luke 16, in verses 10 and 11, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Of course, the question comes, brother and sister in Christ, Are we being faithful to do what the Lord has already given us to do? Do you and I want to become one whom God uses to do His work? Be faithful. See what God has given you to do and do it. I'll just share one story. And um, came from Canada and I've been busy preaching all over the place, traveling here, traveling there. And the last year of my ministry, I preached for every Sunday, sometimes twice. And I got here thinking, this will be great, get to Australia, my homeland, and I'll just start preaching again and carry right on, and it'll be so cool. And I got here, and, 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 and nothing happened for like months. And I finally went to my pastor, John, and I just said, I don't know what's going on. Did I misunderstand? And he said to me, he said, how long have you been here? I said, three months. And he said, well, for goodness sakes, give the Lord a chance. He said, things take time. He said, here's what I think you should do. He said, you should find something in the church that needs doing and do it. Okay, that makes sort of sense. So I went to church next Sunday and I was sitting there and Dave Wood, uh, some of you remember Dave, he passed away uh, just about a year ago, I think now. And he got up the front and gave an announcement, we're looking for men to set up chairs in the church. And I thought, okay, Lord, that's, that's something that needs doing. You're right. I, I got muscles. I can lift chairs. And so uh, we had about, there was about 320-odd people coming. So I had to set up all these chairs. It takes about two hours. So I rocked up and said, yeah, I'll help set up chairs and got busy. You know, it wasn't more than a couple months before he knocked on the door and said, hey, uh, I've got to be away in next week. Would you mind preaching? The elders have been watching you. And I apologize for using myself as an example, right? But the point is the same. Faithful in little things, and God opens doors to bigger things. Paul and Barnabas were faithful in the little things. They were faithful in the the practical things. They were faithful in teaching the church. They got involved in what was right before them. They got busy, and God used them and brought them into ministry. But listen here. Faithfulness in ministry requires both faith and obedience. Paul, try again. I keep wanting to say Paul and Barnabas, because that's what the most of the Acts says, but the text is actually Saul and Barnabas, so we'll stick with that. Barnabas and Saul were exercising obedience to God's revealed will for them, teaching the church. Barnabas and Saul also exercised faith in God as they preached and taught and ministered and carried the funds to Jerusalem. Every ministry opportunity will require faith and obedience to God. And listen here. Ministry is the safest risk you will ever engage in. It is a risk. It requires us to step out in faith without a certain knowledge of all the end results. Paul faithfully ministered the word in multiple places with multiple persons without knowing the future circumstances. He faithfully ministered in Corinth for two years. And just after he left, the Corinthian church turned against him and he fought a battle 
to regain their trust, their respect, and their confidence. He writes with lament in 2 Timothy. He had ministered amongst a group of younger believers, young men, only to see a certain Demas turn back, having loved this present world. And you can almost see the tear stain as you read his words. It broke his heart. It's a risky thing. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the outcome of your ministry, but it's also absolutely safe. It's the safest risk because as long as we faithfully, from a heart of love for God and His people, live the truth of God's Word and preach and teach the truth of God's Word, if we water it with much prayer, we can rest in the fact of God's faithfulness to His Word. He, God alone, is responsible for the results. We are responsible to be faithful to the Word of God and what God has given us to do. We will not know until the final day what will be the true result and fruit of our labors. But we have this great promise of Scripture. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, and most of you will know this even as I begin to read it. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my worth. It will not return to me empty. And think of this, beloved. One day there will be men and women who will stand before God. And he will say, my servant, John Smith, preached the gospel to you and you rejected it. Depart from me. I don't know you. That's a terrible thing. No, but you are faithful to God's word. And God's word has an effect, even if it is to the condemnation of the one who listened but rejected. God's word will not be allowed to return to him empty or void. Brother and sister, if we desire to serve the Lord, don't look and wait for the great ministry. Look what needs to be done. Get busy doing it. Display to the church and God your faithfulness in the little things because God uses the faithfulness in the little things of church ministry as the training and proving ground to test His servants for greater things. God uses men and women who are faithful already in the ministry that they see before them. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is will we be faithful to God in the small things? Will we step out in faith and obedience despite the fact that everybody else says, don't do it that way, there's a better way, there's an easier way? Will we step out in faith and obedience and preach the gospel and proclaim the truth when everybody else is saying, that's an old verse, don't worry about it, that's, that's too sticky, put that aside. No, will we be faithful to what God has given us and shown us. Barnabas and Saul were faithful in what God had already given them to do. Notice thirdly that God uses those who are active in worship. God uses those who make the worship of God their first priority. In chapter 13 and verse 2, Barnabas and Saul were ministering to the Lord. That word is the word uh, liturgio. That's not exactly how it sounds in Greek, but you know, uh, it means worship. Ministering with the idea of formal service and worship. They were probably teaching or preaching. Maybe they were leading the congregation in worship. Maybe preaching. Maybe singing. Maybe praying. But they were leading the church in in an act of worship. Beloved, there must be a priority of worship before service. 
we too easily buy into this very man-centered idea that says, God needs me to do this, that, or the other thing. Beloved, they got a new telescope, right? Up there shooting out into space. Anybody know what it's called? There it is. Can see further than ever before, right? Can they see the end of space in the universe? No. Here's the cool thing. God created all the existence, all of the universe in seven days without our help. He did it so good he took the last day off to rest. If we think for a split second that God needs us to do something, we massively misunderstand the omnipotent power and strength of Almighty God. Christ accomplished the eternal salvation of sinners, reconciled us to God by Himself without our help. God does not need us. But, this is the cool part, God delights to use us like a wise and loving father. When we first got here, uh, we stayed with uh, our pastor's uncle, and, uh, and Brady was quite a bit younger then. And Mr. Baker, who was this very godly, older, grandfatherly kind of guy, he just loved to hang out with Brady and, and do stuff with him. And he needed Brady's help with things. And you know what? Our God is like that wise and loving father who looks at his little boy, and his little boy is just barely able to walk, and he invites the little boy to come and help him with the chores. The little boy can, can't lift anything, can't do much, but he loves to be with his father, and his father loves to be with a little boy, and loves to take little boy's hands and help him to do the work. That's what it is like with us and our God. He doesn't need us to do it, but he delights. He loves to use faithful sons and daughters to accomplish the work that he's doing. God delights to use us. God delights in our fellowship. And listen, he's far more interested in what we are than what we can do. He's far more interested in godly character than your competency at preaching and teaching. You can give a guy my notes, a good orator, stand him up here, dress him up, put him in a suit, and he could probably do it better than I can. I guarantee he can do it better than I can. But God's not interested in just a voice. He's interested in a heart. He's interested in godliness when nobody's looking. He's interested in faithfulness when nobody can see what we're doing. And that's what Barnabas and Saul had demonstrated, a faithfulness. They're active in worship. Now, some of you are going to say, now, hang on a second. I don't see this priority of worship in the text. Why is Nelson saying that worship must come first? So glad you asked. It's not specifically here in this text, but it certainly is in Scripture. In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 39, Jesus has asked, Teacher, what is the first or the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. I've lost count of the number of times I've added on strength. But it's not actually in the text, not here. He just says your heart, your soul, and your mind. The great and foremost commandment, that's it. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is worship? If you were, if you, can you worship? Absolutely, 100%. Just as good and just as probably better than the rest of us. Because worship is not about singing. It's not about lifting hands. It's not about praying. It's about a heart that's in love with God. 
That's what worship is. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. Moses, at the end of his life, last thing he was going to say to the people of Israel, so it made it extra long. He gathered them all together in the plains there, and he gave them an extended several hours long exposition of the law of God, and we have it recorded for us. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, he asked and answered a very important question. Now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to, number one, fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul? Fear the Lord your God. That's number one. The reverent, awe-filled amazement and respect for God. That's worship. It's worship when we stand there and we open our mouths to try and express something of what we see of God and our heart is so broken and so in love with God that we just can't say anything. And we look up and we just, we're speechless. People walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon and they look over. In that moment, every word, every idea that you could express about the greatness, the beauty of that place just flies away as totally inadequate. And that's what worship is when we stand before God in the fear of God and we just can't say anything. Our hearts are so broken over who God is. That's the fear of the Lord. Secondly, to walk in His ways. That's a godly lifestyle. A godly lifestyle flows out of godly worship. And he goes on to talk about love. And the last one, of course, is to serve the Lord. That's the action of doing for God. So in Moses' answer, worship and lifestyle comes first. Service comes later. So then obviously service is unnecessary. No, that's not what we're saying. Service is absolutely necessary. It's a command of God. Is service required of all of us? Yes, of course it is. Is there a danger to having worship and service out of priority? And the answer is absolutely there's a danger. Absolutely. Brothers and sisters, Barnabas and Saul are actively involved in the church's worship of the Lord their God, the Lord our God. Worship of God must be a priority for us. In this instance, worship was a time for the people of God to assemble together into one place. They sang the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs they had. They offered up various prayers to God. They read, explained, and exhorted the people of God from the Old Testament Scriptures about Christ. And finally, they gathered around the table and celebrated the Lord's Supper. And as they were worshiping, the Spirit of God spoke to them. God uses those who make worship their highest priority. Worship has a profound ability to remind us of our absolute need of God and His great love to desire for our fellowship with Him. Worship has a profound benefit of helping us to see the greatness of God and the littleness of ourselves. And as somebody who has been involved in service for the Lord for, this is my 30th year, I can tell you right now, if your perspective is warped and you see yourself as a bit too big, God has a very unique way of pushing you down. And worship has a tremendous ability to change our perspective, to see the greatness of God and the littleness of ourselves. And when we go back to serve, it puts everything into the correct perspective. Notice also that Barnabas and Saul in the church were fasting and praying. 
And fasting and prayer in the New Testament church indicated a sense of expectancy and openness to the Lord's leading. The church in Antioch were praying, fasting, and seeking the Lord's leading to know His mind about something. And we can see here, it's about who will go out into ministry. John Piper in his book on fasting and prayer described fasting as a means of depriving ourselves of things, whether it's food or drink or sex or whatever it is, to expose to our own hearts our true fleshly desires and to ask in prayer for the removal of those desires, to put those desires to death that we might live lives that are more pleasing to God. He further, Piper, describes fasting as a way of saying, Lord, I crave to know your mind, your answer to my prayers. I want your answer, Lord, more than I want that thing that I've fasted from, whatever it might be. And here the church in Antioch is fasting and praying in the expectancy of knowing what the mind of the Lord is. Notice the immense importance of the prayer life of those whom God uses. Barnabas and Saul were actively involved in the church's corporate prayer life, not merely their own private prayers. You read through the books and the letters of Paul, you see he describes his prayer life in his own writings. He was a man devoted and committed to prayer. And if I could add a sixth point, I didn't want to scare you by putting six in there, but if I could add a sixth point, I'd say this. God uses those who are devoted to prayer. Because it's a devotion to prayer. It's a priority of worship that reminds us again of how great God is and how small we are. Fourthly, God uses those who are separated by His call and command. Notice again in verse 2, the second part of it, the Spirit called the church to separate Barnabas. Did you notice there what He says? While they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Who's He talking to? He's speaking to the church. He isn't just speaking to Saul and Barnabas. He's speaking in the context and in concert with the church leadership. He's identifying to the church leadership who are the ones that he has chosen. That's absolutely critical. That's absolutely key. God doesn't work outside of the context of the church. Uh, Some of you know the story, some of you don't. My greatest failure in ministry was when I stepped around that particular point, and I spent four years reaping the benefits And some of the scars will never go away for that. But God always works in context and the concert with a church leadership. The Spirit called the church to separate Barnabas and Saul. The Spirit speaks to the church about them. A genuine call of God is something the church will recognize, confirm, encourage, support, pray for, and offer help for. And the Spirit has already called them. Notice that the separate part is present tense. I have called. That's past tense. He's already set them apart. We know that in Saul's conversion. He told him that the things he must suffer as he served the Lord. He would be his tool to go to the Gentiles. That was 10 years ago. God's call and the beginning of your ministry may not happen back to back. I first... As a young man at 13 years of age, somebody asked me what I want to do with my life. And I said, I want to be a pastor and a preacher. I was 13. I started pastoring when I was 40. I serve the Lord in the middle, but that part didn't happen for a long time. The call may come 
but the beginning of that ministry may take years to develop and unwind. So how does the Spirit speak? How did that actually happen? The text simply says, the Spirit said. And there are similar statements made by Luke within the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 8.29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. In Acts 10.19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him. Same again in Acts 11, verse 12, the Spirit told Peter. We're not given much elaboration on that. We just simply says he said it. So I would suggest, and I agree with most of the commentators who say, that as they were there worshiping the Lord together, one of those five men was leading the church in worship, and there was a strong sense by God's Holy Spirit to identify Barnabas and Saul as those to be separated from the church to God for a new area of work. And as the one spoke, the others had a similar sense of peace and approval from the Lord about the leading and directing of the Holy Spirit in those two men's lives. So how do we hear the Spirit's voice in our church now, today? Remember this. I said this a few weeks ago. I'm going to repeat it because it's really important. Acts is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. Meaning what? Acts describes what happens. We don't get our primary teaching about how the church functions and is to function today from the book of Acts. We see illustrations and examples and lots of great lessons in the book of Acts, but it's primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. So how do we, how do you and I, if we wish to know something, how do we find out what the Spirit of God would like to tell us? Very simple. You're all holding one in your hands, or you should be. A Bible, right? The Bible is the written Word of God by the Holy Spirit. He inspired it through godly men of old. And before we go looking to hear something new, we better be absolutely sure that we have discovered and mastered everything God has to say within what in my Bible is 1,267 pages. Just in case you're wondering, I haven't gotten there. And I'm willing to bet that none of you have either, right? You don't know the whole what the Bible says, If we, you and I, wish to know something in particular, what do we do? Pray, number one. Simply ask God. Number two, we fast before the Lord as we pray. We put aside things to separate ourselves to God for that time of prayer. We search the Scriptures seeking a clear answer from God. I'd give you something else too. We sit down with the older godly men and women whom we trust and we ask them to pray with us and give us their prayerful input. God will confirm His answer and His leading through the Scriptures, through the church's leadership. That was essentially the process Heather and I followed when we sought the Lord's leading about returning here to Oz and later about applying for the role as pastor here at Noble Park Baptist Church. I, I couldn't count the number of times I drove up outside the gate, sat out there, turned my car engine off and just prayed. This is before you guys even knew that I was thinking about it. Pleaded with God. Pleaded with God that He would close the door hard and slam it shut if it was not His doing. And after that call came in those weeks between the, 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 phone, the text message that Wes sent me on March 19th, 2017, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. The God, and you know what else I did? I went out and I asked men, men I trusted, godly older men. I said, what do you think? This is it. Would you pray with me? Would you give me your advice and input back? And the most 
incredible moments, every single older godly man I asked, bar none, said, you should do it. And God confirmed his call. God speaks through his word. God speaks through the prayerful advice of older, godly, mature men and women. I want you to notice a couple of things here that's important. God uses those who are separated by his call and command. We can see three things there. The Spirit separates his servants from other work. He was taking Saul and Barnabas out of Antioch. He'd raised up and built up new teachers, new preachers to carry on the ministry there. And he was saying, you know what? Your time here is done. We're moving you on. Just like we saw last week in Acts chapter 12. God was moving some men into some ministries and out of others and moving them around. God can do that. It's His church. The Spirit separates His servants from other work. The Spirit was already inclining their hearts to the work which He was calling them to. Paul in later years would express a desire at the end of his ministry to still go places and make Christ known in areas and places where the gospel had never been heard. He had a heart and a passion for the gospel. The Spirit separates His servants from other work. The Spirit separates His servants to Himself. Separate to me. Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them to. They were separated to the Lord. They were guided by Christ's Spirit in His walk and work and with the purpose of glorifying Christ's Father. And if you look at Paul in his later years, in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 10 11, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And when you put everything else, strip it all away from Paul, what Paul wanted above everything else was to know Christ. So when the Spirit says, separate to me, Separate to God these men for the work. It's a separation from other work. It's a separation to God. Somebody asked Paul Washer. He's told the story a number of times. When he first thought about going into pastoral ministry, somebody sat him down and said, can you be alone? And he thought, alone with God, no problem. And he meant that, but he meant alone from everybody else too. And one of the things that we discovered in ministry is ministry can be a lonely work because you are separated to God and to God alone. Thirdly, the Spirit separates His servants into Christ's work. The work is settled. The Spirit already knows. You, look, you read through the book of Acts, you see how the Spirit guided Paul and Barnabas in different places they went. The Spirit already knows where and how He will lead them and the cost they will both pay. There's no idleness in the work of the Lord. It is toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We are, as servants and ministers, fellow laborers with Christ. We're shouldering His yoke to bear His burden and finish the work in His strength. Brothers and sisters, our time is flying away, but do you want to be one of those whom God uses to do His work? If you're slow to answer, that's a good thing. You say, yeah, I want to serve the Lord. Amen. Count the cost, because there are costs associated with serving the Lord. Brother and sister in Christ, are we being faithful in what God has already given us to do? Are we active in the worship and the prayer life of the church? Are we fasting and praying and seeking to know the Lord's mind about what He would have us to do to clarify it to us? Are we searching the Scriptures to hear the Spirit's voice? Are we willing to be separated by God's call on our life, separated from all other work, 
separated to God and willing to be alone with God, separated to work a difficult, tear-stained labor. Because the call on us to follow the Lord is a call to consecrate our lives, to serve God in His work. And the last one, they're commissioned with the, with the church's confidence. They, notice what it says in verse number 3. It says, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. They already heard the call. Why did they keep praying and fasting? Because there's a new thing to pray about. I think it's kind of cool. They prayed. They fasted. They were seeking the Lord's leading for where to begin. Testing to see to determine the, the reality of God's call. After you hear that call, just like I sat there outside, after the church had said, yes, we want you to come, I sat out there and prayed. Rod and I met over in his office and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Because we wanted to confirm, to know for a certainty. We wanted that reassurance of God in our own hearts that this was the right answer. That we weren't just letting our own desires overtake and run in a different direction. We wanted to be absolutely sure it was God's answer. They fasted. They prayed, seeking the Lord's blessing and help for the ministry and difficulties that Barnabas and Saul will encounter. And you can see, before you even turn the page, there's already difficulties that they're going to encounter. Then they laid hands on them. Sorry, I, I don't like using myself in illustration. I hate that, but it just came to mind. Uh, over there in front of the baptismal, the old stage, I'll never forget the induction service. And Wes and Poovin and Con and I think it was uh, Chris maybe as well, a couple others, got up there, and they all laid hands on Heather and I. We knelt in front, beside the pulpit, and they prayed for us. That was a moving time. An immensely more moving time was a few weeks earlier, sitting in our lounge room with the folks from Casey Bible Church, and they laid their hands on us, Heather and I, and released us from the work we'd been doing and sent us off to come here. That was a hard moment, sorry. It was the church's identification. They were saying, God has called you and we are identifying with you. We are here supporting you. We are commissioning you to the work that God has called you to do. And you will go in that. You know what's so cool? The end of this whole story in 14, they go back to the church of Antioch. And what do they do? They give a report. They recognized the authority of that church over them. And the church was commissioning them. They'd seen what they were doing in ministry. They'd seen God's call in their life. And now they were sending them out. And when they were finished that first missionary tour, they went back to Antioch and gave an account of God's work through them in those places. The church commissioned them because they had the church's confidence. The church recognized what God was doing in their lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a work to be done. There's huge amounts of work to be done in the kingdom of God. God is taking pastors and teachers and missionaries and elders off the scene. We buried in the last 11 11 days two great prayer warriors in this church. Who will step up and take their place? There's a day coming. I don't know whether it's next month, next year, or 10 years from now when I'll be gone. Who will stand up? Who will God use to take this spot? I hope you live for a very long time, dear brother, but in day to come, not far away, Wes is going to move on. 
There needs to be other elders that will step up and follow his example and step into his shoes and carry on the work. Poover and I the same. There's a need for men and women to be stepping up to be those used by God. And the question is, will we be one of those whom God uses to do his work? Will we be faithful in what God has given us to do already? Will we become active in the worship and prayer life of the church? Will we fast and pray and seek the Lord's mind about what he would have us to do and to clarify it to us? Because he certainly will. Will we search the Scriptures to hear the Spirit's voice? And are we willing to be separated by God's call on our lives, separated from all other work, separated to God, and willing to be alone with God? Brother and sister, will you consecrate your life to serve the Lord? There's a terrible need. I heard uh, my brother-in-law and my sister are looking for a new pastor for their church after some really sad events about a year ago. And he said, do you realize that the Bible college that works with our denomination last year graduated two pastors out of their whole graduating class? More and more and more and more men and women are going through Bible college and school looking to do something other than pastoral ministry. There's a terrible need. There's shortages all over. Churches here in Australia, churches in America, churches all over the world looking for pastors, men who are willing to stand up and preach the gospel and preach and teach the word of God and shepherd and love people. There's a need. My prayer, my prayer from this church, this little group here, see, what can God do with Noble Park Baptist Church? (laughs) You have no idea what God can do with Noble Park Baptist Church. You do great things in Noble Park Baptist Church, and my hope and my prayer is that God will raise up from this church missionaries, elders, pastors, teachers, men and women who are willing to count the cost and follow the Lord, men and women who are faithful in what God has given to do, men and women who are faithful and active in worship and prayer, men and women who are willing to be separated by God to a great work. What will our response be? Would you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer and we'll be finished for the morning. Loving Father in heaven, we just bow this morning in worship before you, for you are God Almighty. And Father, you know the history of this church. You know what you are going to do with this group of people, your people. And Father, we confess immediately, this is not my church. This is your church. These are your blood-bought sheep. And Father, I have no idea if there is another Spurgeon or another MacArthur or some other great missionary, another William Carey standing here this morning. And Father, I cry out to you that you would take of us and you would raise up from amongst us preachers and teachers and pastors and missionaries and evangelists that are willing to count the cost to be faithful in the little things that God might use them for great things. Father, I cry out to you for a work to be done in all of us. Lord, we recognize immediately 
And Father, we reaffirm before you in prayer that it is not competency in skills, it's character of life. And Father, we see in these few verses the results, the fruit of those godly lives of Barnabas and Saul. And Father, you raised them up. Father, you took the most unlikely. Almost certainly, Lord, in the times of Acts chapter 8, nobody would have said that Saul is the next great missionary. Saul is the one who will write a bulk of the New Testament. Nobody would have said that. And yet, O oh God, in your immense grace and mercy and love, you took the most unlikely and used them greatly for your glory. Father, we cry out to you that you would take from amongst this church, this very church, the unlikely ones and use them for your glory. O oh God, we ask you for your help. We plead with you, O oh God, for your work amongst us. Challenge us, convict us, provoke us, O God, to godliness and holiness. And we ask you these things, Father, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.